Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening to ShareGiving, which can be accessed wherever you receive your podcasts, and previous episodes can be retrieved along with the videotaped podcast recordings and other archival material on our website at ShareGiverSolutions.com. As a stark reminder, there are between 15 and 20 million family members in the U.S. alone caring for a loved one with dementia, and Sharegiver Solutions was established with them in mind. So far, we've covered the basic approach of Sharegiving and the three particular elements of mindset, game plan, and networks. I'm Rob Stoller, your host, along with my brother David. Hello, everyone. Today, David and I are so happy to be joined by a world-class individual. Whether in the operating room, on stage doing stand-up, or anonymously helping strangers in need, Dr. John D. Kelly IV is a caregiver's caregiver, even counseling doctors on avoiding and preventing burnout. But more about the doc in a moment when we get him on the line. You know, Dave, I'm getting so old, my favorite drink's Metamucil. Is that what you is that what you put in your coffee? Bada boom. No, I got Bailey's in this, so nice. I do my best. I do my best interviews lit up. <laughs> uh, you look fantastic, by the way. You're a very I, handsome I just, guy. I just uh, uh, got a big operation, a charisma bypass. Nice, nice, very successful. Obviously, <laughs> David, I get my looks from my father. He was a plastic surgeon. <laughs> well. We ready to roll? Yep. For, for everybody uh, listening today, thank you. Uh, I'd like to introduce our esteemed guest. He's an internationally renowned orthopedic surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also a sought after speaker on doctors caring for themselves and healthy relationships, including marriage. He's a performing stand-up comedian and he actually has personal experience with family Alzheimer's and something I've always wanted to say, and a personal friend of mine, Dr. John Kelly, John D. Kelly IV. I met Dr. Kelly when I was producing a promotional video for the Smoke and Joe Frazier Foundation as the doctor was on the board. He was also one of Smoke and Joe's doctors, and he and his twin brother, Mike, worked out at the iconic Frazier's gym. I really only needed a three minute soundbite from my video, but the doctor and I spoke for about an hour and a half. And as I was leaving, doc announced to me, you're in my phone. And we've been in almost constant contact ever since, about 15 years, I think. Uh, oh, and in that time, he's also operated on my shoulders, knees, and hip. Head, shoulders, knees, and hip, knees and hip. The, the uh, head could have used more work. I'll ignore that comment. Doc has also operated on David's shoulder. Anyway, I've never known anyone quite like him. I've witnessed him helping strangers, including friends of mine, with serious issues and nowhere else to turn, simply because he could. I love and admire the man. Welcome, Dr. John. Don't forget, I have some personal experience as well with yeah. my father, with my grandmother who raised me, who had dementia, and my mother, in the later years, in my uh, deceased mother-in-law, so uh, this this hits home. Yeah, it's a wonderful approach. It's like a, a boot camp for life, and there's a game plan that most people just walk into this. They have no idea what they're getting into. I know much of your speaking is directed toward doctors and caring for themselves. Give us an idea, Doc, of what 
how you counsel them and why? Yeah, it's a same premise that share giving is based on that you can't give what you don't have. So, you know, there's a burnout epidemic in medicine now, roughly 50% of physicians are burned out and uh, it's due to many factors, but happy doctors give better care. Happy doctors have more compliant patients. Happy doctors are actually named in less lawsuits, but most importantly, you can't give what you don't have. You can't minister to your patients on an empty tank the same way you can't care for a loved one when you're, when you're uh, the well is dry. So we teach physicians how to care for themselves. And it's not a bad thing to be happy, not to nurture habits of uh, hobbies and work on their own wellness and invest in their own personal happiness. It's a good thing because it'll translate to better patient care. So translate that if you can to A, your own experience with dementia caregiving as a family member and with our audience in mind, maybe counsel them on what you've learned and what might help them be more effective, empathetic, and, uh, and, and self-aware caregivers. One of the first, I think, principle is that it's a tough job and that if you look at the data, nothing like the truth, right? Some studies show up to 74% of caregivers of those with dementia have some form of depression. So going into this, recognizing this is gonna be a challenge, makes you sort of prepared for battle. That's why sharegiving is so important. It's a game plan and recognizing that you're not alone. Those are two huge, huge steps forward uh, because many people, the aging of America is upon us and this is gonna become a, a more prevalent problem than it already is. So, um, you know, recognize it's a huge undertaking, but there are steps you can take to, to self-care. So in my situation uh, was th three pillars of my life, my father, my grandmother who raised me and uh, my mother. And then more recently, my mother-in-law who became close to all of them had some form of dementia. My mother really was more just uh, chronic ill with heart failure, but my grandmother, it was very difficult. It exacted a toll on the whole family but I noticed my father with Parkinson's, how my mother slowly became clinically depressed. And she's in Delaware, was in Delaware. I was in Philadelphia. I felt uh, much uh, less powerful because I wasn't there with her, but uh, my brother stepped up and <clears throat> arranged for some help. Um, we got help through the, actually Jewish family services, um, some other counseling services. I tried to help my mother some self-care steps to talk to a therapist, start her on meds. She was a little resistant to that. Like, you know, what do you think? I'm sick. I'm nuts. I said, no, mom, I think you're a little down. Um, but I think recognizing a couple principles. Number one, it's a huge undertaking. And number two, you're not alone. And number three, there's steps you can take to preserve your own well-being, which will translate to better care for your loved one. You know, there's an old expression, hurt people, hurt people. And, if, and if there is elder abuse. And that's because people reach their limits and they are hurting, so they act out to those closest to them. So it's really a matter of just uh, living to the principles that you just, you can't give what you don't have. And it's a heck of a thing to see someone you love, you know, suffer like this and, and to be in their beck and call and to give up your own vocation, whether it is, you know, the literature is clear that uh, not only up to 74% of people are depressed, but those that are uh, financially dependent, um, uh, if your caregiver relies on you, that's more stress. 
Um, <clears throat> if you're unemployed, that's more stress. So there's many factors you have to recognize and sort of arm yourself and prepare for this uh, long, arduous path, which doesn't have to be one of uh, continual suffering. John, when you uh, people come to you, uh, and especially if they are somebody that um, is older or impaired, even like when I visited uh, you and you took care of Barbara, and you become aware that you know a person like that is suffering, do you? Uh, <clears throat> would it be ordinarily your focus, and do you think that it would be for other doctors, especially family men? family, doctors, to focus on the caregiver, to find out, you know, how they're doing, to uh, maybe steer them to ways that can be helped, because it occurs to me that they are the first professional interface um, with the caregiver, because they're taking care of that patient. And, you know, the, we're talking about millions of people. And I'm just wondering, uh, in your, your own case, if you what kind of interaction you have or whether you think that's a fruitful area to arm doctors and family mem family doctors with more expertise. Well, absolutely, you know, <clears throat> in your case, you're the guardian of your wife <clears throat> and any instructions, uh, prescriptions I give Barbara, they'd be totally relying upon you for the execution. So it would be foolhardy just not to, to, to recognize that. Uh, so, um, it's a very, very integral part. You know, we talk about the biopsychosocial model of illness too. That applies to the caregiver as well. So it's not only, um, you know, the literature is pretty clear though. There's actually some people that are caregivers more resilient just because they don't have pre-existing mental illness. So, but if you're approaching a situation where there's someone that needs you and you already have a little baseline anxiety, depression, you're at a higher risk. So you have to be even more proactive for yourself. Uh, so <clears throat> in your case, David, and I have the highest respect for you because, you know, it's a show of character. And I think the, the listener needs to know this, that people like you that live the vows are a wonderful testament to those principles that we are handed out generation, generation, because what your children see is this is what happens to me when I get older. You know, my, my spouse, my significant that's going to take care, she's going to step up. And, you know, there's an old expression, um, uh, adversity doesn't develop character, it reveals it. That's partially true, but in your case, it certainly revealed your character. I've admired you so much how you lived those vows and um, the, the allegory you give to your children and their children. Yeah, I mean, it, it's two ways. They also, and my kids in particular, because I, I know them in particular, uh, are worried. You know, they see the effort that's required and they worry about me that if something happens to me, then their issues are magnified because of the responsibility that I've taken for Barbara. So in that connection, what they have said is, dad, take care of yourself. You have to make sure you are taking care of yourself. And so I would say, given what, in response to you, yes, it reveals uh, character of the caretaker, but it also I understand that I've got to live my own life too. I, 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 so there's a huge benefit to me to realizing that nothing changes. Each of us needs to think about what makes us happy. I, I use the surgery analogy. You know, before I go to every operation, I have a game plan and I prepare. 
So I think the listener needs to know that when uh, a loved one is deformed with a, you know, dementia or a long-term illness, you have to have it. You don't just walk into it unprepared. And again, you know, uh, if you become depressed and you succumb to depression, like three quarters of caregivers have some measure of it, that's going to translate to less care for your loved one and also unhappiness for you. So it's a, it's a dyad there that can be avoided. So I love your game plan approach. And, you know, there's an old expression, David, that uh, there's no comfort in growth. There's no growth in comfort. This can be an opportunity for personal growth. And you yourself have have talked to me about that before. People can use this challenge as a means to learn how to take care of themselves better and to to not ignore. My my wife's my greatest coach. She's like, you know, what are you doing? You've been in practice 30 years. And, you know, uh, why are you still writing these papers? And, yeah, you're right. You know, deep down inside all of us, we have to recognize that we're wonderfully made. We have nothing to prove, right? We're already, we're already good. And, and we have to develop that abundance mindset and give that to other people around us and feed your soul, nourish your soul with literature, with, with uh, hobbies, with, uh, you know, fun activities, time. Again, the literature is very clear. Those of us that don't have a social network, one of the greatest determinants of personal happiness is friendships. Um, and for the audience, I got two great ones right here in the camera. But, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest predictors of longevity and of health, probably stronger correlation coefficient than actually diet and exercise. How about that one? Wow. And it raises an interesting question. And you, and you, are, you have a big circle of friendships, I know, and I feel privileged to be a part of it and Rob is more directly. That said, it's not easy for any of us, you included, to ask friends for help, right? And, uh, you know, my experience, you know, has been that, that Barbara's friends, for example, would want to help. But I, for a long time, you know, I was more implicated in helping Barbara pretend that everything was okay than I was in seeking help on my behalf or on hers. And you know, this is a big issue, I believe, for people that are caregivers, especially of people that have dementia or Alzheimer's. There's still a stigma attached to it. They still don't want people really to know, and they're afraid of losing those friendships or all kinds of stuff wrapped into that. You know, how do you ask for help? Well, the the other thing is so important to recognize is that once you enter that sort of a cascade of depression, anxiety, both of those are known self-esteem busters. What happens when you lose your self-esteem? You don't think you're worthy of help. Since depression, anxiety are so common in caregivers, one of the hallmarks of depression is a uh, worthlessness. And when you don't feel worthy, you don't ask for help. You feel like you're not worth it. So there's a there's a vicious cycle that can begin and that can sort of spin out of control. That the more anxious, depressed you are, the less likely you are to ask for help, uh, and the more you can descend into despair. But, the, but the, the principle is that asking for help is a sign of strength. You know, I, I work with a bunch of orthopedics and they're like, you know, macho camacho, ah, I'm okay, uh, I don't need help. Well, asking for help is a sign of strength. One of the greatest things I did in my life was when my dad was really sick, I saw a therapist, a cognitive behavioral therapist, and they taught, told you how to manage your mind. You know, it's easy for someone who's taking care of a loved one when they get anxious and depressed to just spin out and their thoughts just take over. So it's important to, to recognize that 
and get the help to keep you on track. So counseling, therapy, whatever you want to do, all kinds of varieties are known, known stress busters, and they're a sign of strength, not weakness. Yeah, you know, initially, I didn't want people to think Barbara had dementia. She didn't want them to think it. So, you know, I was sort of respecting her privacy on this. And why didn't she want it? Because it was such a stigma, you know, that she would lose her friends, that she would lose her positions, that she would lose respect. And so managing that is, you know, not easy because it's a real concern. But once it gets to a point where people do know, uh, then it's, it struck me that I needed to change things. I needed to start asking for help because people wanted to help. I needed to give them a chance to become givers because otherwise they weren't going to volunteer. It was difficult. I could see in Barbara's friends, they would meet her after not having seen her for a while and it would be shocking to them. She wouldn't recognize them or she wouldn't know who they are. And I'm sure they were thinking in part, uh, this could happen to me. You know, wow, this is, this is frightening. But when I would ask them to help, could you bring a dinner or could you visit? They were falling over themselves to do that. They wanted to do that. It gave them something. In fact, one told me she was afraid to call. She was feeling so guilty that she, you know, was, had become disengaged. She didn't know how to reconnect until I called her. And then she was thrilled and has done it regularly. But there's a lot in there. And what you said, number one, because people do feel badly about themselves, but the other part is giving people a chance to become givers themselves. Your paradigm is, what's the loving thing for this person? And it's not always what you want to see. You have to put yourself in their, in their mindset and say, my dad, for instance, was a Marine, very proud guy, boxer. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, despite my family's, uh, uh, my protests, you know, we, we gave him a feeding too, which in retrospect was not something he would have wanted, but, you know, you have to separate what you want because of what you think they want. And, you know, it, it's always, they say, what are, the, what are the demands of love in this moment for my daddy? What would he want? And you have to, it's hard. And, you know, I have to, to share with the audience, we kept him alive for us, not for him right. under artificial means. And he went through all these, <clears throat> uh, these bed sores and all these things that he never, ever would have wanted. He was a proud Marine boxing champion. And it was just, some, you know, I would like to sh share it. And if you're armed with a good mindset and with some reasonable counseling and with some good coaching from your friends, you realize, eh, let's rethink this feeding tube. I don't know if you were born to be a caregiver because I, I've witnessed, as I said, I've witnessed you help people you've never met, never spoken with, probably still haven't spoken with, but you've helped them. My friends still say, who is that guy? What, what is it in you that either alerted you to uh, the need on the part of doctors who are caregivers by profession uh, to, to counsel them in terms of being aware of their own well-being? Complicated answer, and I learned some of these through my own voyage in therapy in that uh, I didn't mention that my dad was an alcoholic in recovery and had a very difficult childhood. And uh, so children of alcoholics have a usual mindset where they 
they want others not to suffer as they did. And they also want to fix things. So I wanted to make things right in my home. And I remember like, you know, taking you home from, you know, racetrack and bars, whatever, before you, before his recovery, he's my hero. He was in recovery the last several years, but the, he had some difficult times. So it was my empathy genes were hyper alert from the suffering I did <clears throat> and the ability or the, the want to fix things and others so they didn't have to suffer like I did. And <clears throat> like most Irish Catholics, I had a little calling to the priesthood, you know, try to save the world. And I realized I wanted a family. So medicine was the next best option. So I think it's a, a matter of uh, uh, my own personal suffering has raised my, I guess the, they call it emotional intelligence. I can walk in a room, Rob, at a, a conference. I can tell you exactly what residents depressed. It's just a sense I have. Hmm. And, uh, and the third part of that is through my faith, I realized I'm happiest when I'm helping people. So before it became kind of an erotic need just to feel good about, to feel needed and to fix things. And now as I get older and I feel like I'm getting my act together, getting not there yet, that it's more from an abundance mentality. And I just want to share my insights and just help people along the journey because I see so much needless suffering in the world that can be, can be helped with just a few simple interventions. You know, it's studies show that just by taking one step for self-care, like whether it's making a point with a doctor with a therapist or uh, uh, getting a personal trainer translates to almost an immediate feeling of peace, you know, empowerment. So I see a lot of needless suffering. I have empathy off the wazoo because of the suffering in my own life. And that's the, they call it ACOA, adult child wants to fix the world. I try to shake that, but it's always a part of me that I can never get rid of. Mm. John, um, the scale of this is enormous and, and growing. Uh, you know, just for dementia alone, there's, uh, nine or 10 million people that suffer it, the caregivers are 16 million and another 20 years, it'll be as many as 50 million people are caregiving for people with dementia. How we're focused on trying to create solutions that can be applied at scale, that can really help people help this universe as opposed to what has been the case right now, which is one-to-one -one type interventions as you're talking about. Do you see a way that this can be done, that we can uh, do this where it can address this problem at greater scale, cover, touching more people than one at a time? Absolutely. I think that your template is really geared for success. I mean, you're approaching this in a very, very, uh, um, I think, pragmatic way, and you're taking all like sort of the literature and infusing it that People have to recognize that there are options, uh, that they're not alone, and there's tremendous opportunities for growth. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, I think you mentioned the you know, game plan, the mindset, networking. So those are all really cogent, um, you know, f uh, sophisticated and logical steps people can be armed with. And instead of like like I said, I use a surgeon analogy. Instead of walking in willy nilly, let's figure this out. No, you, you got to have a game plan before you walk into this cauldron of stress, which is only going to get worse in time if you let it because the disease progresses, right? And, and resources tend to dwindle. And, and again, if you don't take care of your depression, anxiety, you'll feel less about yourself. And what's going to happen is 
less care to the loved one. And as you descend into less productivity, your own life gets jettisoned in the process. So uh, I think that there's a lot of science uh, behind what you're doing. It's approaching it very, very proactively before you descend into despair and you make it lose, lose. And I, I have such remorse about the way my dad was handled from our own family because we were selfish and it's a natural thing. Yeah. You don't want to see your loved ones, but we never really, we never took a step back and developed awareness and said, what's the loving thing for dad right now? And, and my wife was a voice of reason. She's a nurse. And my family with my family was just, they weren't like, they weren't, they weren't ready to let go. And as a result, my father suffered. <clears throat> yeah. I just had a conversation with my daughters. We're going to schedule a meeting while I am fully <laughs> healthy to talk about that possibility and what are, what do I want? What do they want? What do they worry about? What are the things that we want to make sure? Hopefully I got another 25 or 30 years where we're going to be having these luncheons, but you don't want there to be anything left really uncovered or undiscussed. Uh, that, so it's like creating the checklist that you have when you go into surgery. It's anticipating that which one day is gonna happen. Bring a big point, David, that you know, right now you have clarity because you're still young, your mind's still sharp, but also you're not in the throes of stress. And you know, when we're stressed out and depressed and anxious, we don't make clear. One of the, again, my father was my hero. One of the principles at AA was, you know, never make a big decision when you're angry or tired or depressed or hungry. So you're approaching this sort of preemptively. And, you know, there's an old expression we use in surgery training is like the OR is a bad place to think. <laughs> so you should have everything mapped out and you walk out and that's where we execute. So for the readers here, your game plan, once it's set in motion, you just execute. And the, the, the hard work is done front end. So as, you know, things become more challenging, you got to take care of, you, you've had, it's a thoughtful approach with clarity that's proactive, that prepares for, for the event of, uh, of problems. Great. And, and as a follow-up to that, I know that, I know David has, um, and there was concern on the part of his daughters and himself that this, the gene, they might have the gene and maybe looking at their future. What have, I'm curious as to whether or not uh, you guys have had any discussions being that there's some family history here. Have you spoken with uh, your, your, the Twin Towers and uh, have you and Marie had any discussions? We've had a few probably not enough. Uh, the Twin Towers, uh, for those viewers, are uh, Dr. Dr. Kelly's gorgeous twin daughters who are superstars by any, I couldn't, we don't even have time to talk about the- No, we don't have time to talk about have, them. But they're brilliant, gorgeous. I know uh, we're studying medicine and uh, just incredible- Education, Mary's in education, but more important of all of, of, than any of those things, they're, they're women of character, and one with the service orientation. Like I said, Mary Elizabeth's in Denver in education, Amory is in medicine, and they have their, their mother's looks and their values. So it's a wonderful uh, mitzvah for us to see kids that just want to change the world. But, you know, in our end, uh, my dad was a boxer and he had heart uh, bypass. 
I think that was a material contribution to Parkinson's. Now, grandma had Alzheimer's, but it didn't manifest probably till her 80s. So I wouldn't say that's tremendous genetic loading. However, the emerging field of epigenetics has become much more um, prominent in our literature. And that choices you make can affect your gene expression. So, you know, there's more and more literature now showing that, you know, the Alzheimer's is not an inexorable path that, you know, diet, blood pressure control, particularly control of blood sugar, exercise. Uh, there's some wonderful work on some of the, the inflammatory component of Alzheimer's health that maybe certain anti-inflammatory medications can, can slow the onset. Uh, and there's lots of work with this, this tau protein and its deposition, how we can prevent that. So there's lots of molecular work going on. So, but anyway, epigenetics is a whole emerging field that choices you make can affect your gene expression. So I think, David, if your daughters just live healthy lives, and I think plant-based, I'll say it now, principally plant-based diet is where the literature is going, uh, and keep their blood sugar like very tight. And there's actually medications now that people take for diabetes that may be life extenders. Uh, I, for instance, take something called metformin, even though my sugars aren't high, it has tremendous anti-aging properties and uh, free radical scavenging uh, and uh, in addition to extended yeah. life in rats. So, so it's all kinds of things that are on the horizon. So uh, it is not that inexorable thing. And um, there is genetics, but again, epigenetics, you can express those genes differently through choices you make. You know, Doc, uh, um, and this has been great and we may be getting to the end, but metformin that you just mentioned, I just saw a program last night uh, with two doctors that were advocates for it. It's, uh, it's, it's just like a derived from an herb. And um, it's basically a very powerful free radical scavenger. And actually I'm doing some research now on some of these other type two diabetic drugs, uh, the uh, SGL2 inhibitors, you know, this you know, things you see like, you know, Farsego uh, uh, and whatever, these may have some life preserving properties. And uh, I've been dabbling with intermittent fasting and I've never felt better, you know, I've never felt better. You know, uh, I was getting a little heavy there, Rob. My, my six pack became a keg. And uh, my wife said, I've not only uh, kept my figure, I doubled it at one point, uh -oh. but, but since I've done the intermittent fasting, guess what? I think more clearly, uh, I've lost 10 pounds and uh, my blood sugars came down. So there's lots and lots of things. For the audience, for the audience, Doc, because I do it also, it's uh, spacing your eating uh, for at least 12 to 16 hours from when you go to sleep to when you eat the next time. I, I can't count myself among that group. I'm, I'm more concerned with my next meal rather than uh, <laughs> spacing it out, but that's just me. You, you guys are blessed with, uh, for the audience, incredible genes. I mean, I knew their father who was just a wonderful man uh, who left this earth, I think at 98. 95. Oh, 95. And their mother is sharp as a tech who I try to call regularly. And you guys are- Bless you for that. Who, who's, about, who's about to be 95. Yeah, she'll be 95 in May. You guys are in the Hall of Fame in genetics. <laughs> well, I'm not going to start <laughs> smoking. By again, the way, um, for the audience, again, Doc Kelly does call my mom. She loves him. She adores the calls calls me after she speaks with him. And it's just part of your makeup as the most caring individual I've ever met. Well, again, that's, that's uh, there's another principle in AA, like, you know, you stay sober by helping people. And that's how I stay happy. Either you can 
you know, as we say in Yiddish, fetch about your own problems or just reach out to someone else, make the world a better place. So you get out of yourself and it translates to better outcomes. And I'll, I'll summarize the burnout literature for, for those of you in healthcare. Um, there's a lot of studies now. So all of us have balls in the air and challenges. But what separates the resilient folks from the, from the burnout is the presence of uplifts one gets in their day. And here's the, this is the audience needs to know. How do you get uplifts in your day? You give them, you give uplifts. So by being a source of light, a source of encouragement, you in turn receive them. And that's how JK can stay JK. In addition to a wonderful family, my wonderful wife, and, and, a, and my silence. Every morning I have silence and prayer time. Quiet your mind. You know, there's so much mishigas out there that we all need a little silence and connect to our higher power. Without that, as we say in South Philly, I got nothing. I got nothing. Well, before we sign off, I have to mention your uh, uh, stand-up career, which is burgeoning. And, you know, you're, you're, you're funny as hell, but there's- but Looks aren't everything. No, that's true. But there's more to it than just being funny. Talk about the, and I've seen you in the operating room. You're funny in the operating room. Um, talk to me about the, the value of humor in life and even in caregiving. Well, I'm going to quote Proverbs. A cheerful heart is good medicine. So, um, again, that's part of giving uplifts. And humor can be a weapon. And I've weaponized it in the past. I regret that seriously. But humor can also be used to lift people up. Like, Robbie's so smart. His IQ is higher than my malpractice premium. Right? You know? So you can say things in an efficient, uplifting way to build the audience up. And there's such a, a dearth of good, clean cut humor now mm. to make people happy and to bless, I say, bless the crowd. And that's how I can perform and not get nervous because it ain't about me. You know, early in my career, I was worried about, did they like me? And that was part of the approval diction I suffered with for years. Now it's like, can I make this audience laugh? And if I do, I'm giving out uplifts, I get them in return. And it's win-win. So humor is such a wonderful, wonderful adjunct to health. And all the great uh, stress philosophers all had a sense of humor. People that I know that are most successful all have a sense of humor. And they also have a significant value system that was taught by, by good parents, as you have both had. Anything else you'd like to say, doctor? No, it's just been a blessing, you guys. This is such an unmet need. It's 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 about to explode. Uh, our best friend become our enemy. You know the statin drugs uh, and some of these new diabetic drugs are causing life extension. So this, this quote problem is going to balloon because thank God we're living longer and longer. But with that, we're going to have the higher and higher need for care. So you know it's, it's funny that you know your enemy is your gift, and some of these medications are all on you know statins. And some of these SGL2 inhibitors, uh, uh, SGLP2 inhibitors, um, and metformin, they're life extenders. So this is the new uh, challenge of our generation. And you guys have have a game plan that people need to look at so, don't, so they don't just aimlessly fall into this and then and, and look for help when it's too late. Dr. John D. Kelly IV, I love you. I thank you. And uh, God bless you, brother. God bless you guys too. And keep up the great work you're doing. It's going to help me. Thanks, Doc. Thank you so much, Doc. You're welcome.
We'd like to thank everyone for listening today and are so grateful to Dr. John Kelly for his wisdom, insight, humor, and friendship. On a personal note, what began as an interview between strangers for a worthwhile purpose has become a meaningful, lifelong relationship of love and support. Relationships make our lives brighter and our loads lighter, and you can quote me. May this be the start of many more rewarding relationships. Please go to ShareGiverSolutions.com to share your thoughts, critiques, concerns, and your stories. They are important to us, as sharing is the way of caring. And singing is good for the soul. Let's do it, David. Amen. 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 Sing it one more time now. Amen. 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 Amen.